Well, if you haven't guessed us already, Proverbs chapter 31. Now, in chapter 31, as you know, overall in that chapter, we have really been focused on the character study of the virtuous woman. And uh, it's, it's been a great study for us. And, uh, uh, you know, it really is a picture of what our life should be. And it gave us really an insight, an inside look at what the ministry really should be and what it's really all about. And last week, we've, we saw the husband show up. And, uh, you know, and it talked about him being respected in the gates because of his wife. And I told you how that that was a great picture of you and me as Christ's bride and how that when we uh, in this life exalt the Lord Jesus Christ and lift him up, uh, you know, for all the world to see and uh, how that uh, gives him a great reputation and people see actually through our lives, your lives, uh, and that's how that they're drawn to Christ because you uh, will uplift him in everything that, that you do. And, you know, and I told you, you know, so much of Christianity today is about lifting up ourselves and, and not the Lord. And that's a shame and it's a tragedy, but <clears throat> that's just where it's kind of all have went to. And I told you last week, Christianity uh, preachers have a really bad reputation uh, for the most part because of all that goes on. You know, you see the giant mega churches and all they ever talk about is money and they care really nothing about the people and you get a crowd and, you know, and just... It's just a terrible thing. But also, when we do lift up Christ, you know, uh, God uh, will draw, the Bible says, uh, all men unto him. And that's really the way that he wants to accomplish what he does. Uh, you know, but I want you to know that we never never lift him up just by what we say uh, alone. You know, it's more than that. Uh, but we lift him up, not by obviously our, our, what we do say to people, but backing that up will be our lifestyle. You know, how we live our lives uh, and exalt him through every day and what we do. You know, people can deny, and they will, people can deny what you say. And that happens all the time. You're going to find that when you try to, you know, you try to uh, uh, witness to people. But they can never deny what you live. And, and that's really the key. And that's why the Bible talks about in, in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, us being that living sacrifice. You know, somebody said one time, every, every Christian should witness. And sometimes they should even use words. And that is so true. And, you know, uh, many of you, uh, you know, six or seven years ago, we... Uh, we began a, a ministry here called the People Ministry. And it was a volunteer thing. I, I just went before the people and simply said, hey, look, uh, you know, if you would like to work with me and help me, uh, we all need to get on the same page of, of where we're, we're going to go and what we're going to do. And so we started, uh, you know, we started a couple of times a month working together and, and really just going through uh, all of the principles that, that it takes to understand how to work with people. And it's really, for me anyhow, 
way back in the day, I, I knew what I wanted to accomplish, and I really knew that I wanted this to be the hub. And I gave everybody a chance to get in on it. And <laughs> all through this time, people have come in, and we, we've got a great core of people. And, but it, I, I knew that it was more than just, needed to be more than just a class of, of teaching biblical solutions to issues to people's problems. Uh, it had to be more than that. And, you know, through the years, we have bonded together in understanding not the truth of what we've got to put out, but working together uh, as a team that we really understand how, what we're doing and what we're trying to do. But, you know, through our years together, we have made a really close fit uh, in, in the ministry here that has been invaluable to me. We've really built a bond, which is, is what it really needs. I can find people all over the place that really know their Bible. They're, they're out there. What I'm looking for is the ability for somebody to the bond in that team concept of, of realizing what we have here, the opportunities, and more than that, what it really takes to... To, to, to help somebody change their life and get uh, where they need to be. You know, uh, using you to fit into p- particular scenarios. I've always taught and thought that Christianity ought to be so flexible that God's people could be dropped into any scenario, any place, any time. You know, in the military, they have the, uh, the 82nd Airborne is, is the classic example. It's probably the oldest airborne unit uh, from uh, Kamata World War I as an infantry group, and then in World War II became the, you know, the 82nd Airborne, which is uh, uh, fought all through the early part of World War II and, in, and still today. You know, the 82nd Airborne, when all the other airborne units have kind of passed off the scene, the 82nd has become the the standard uh, in this country. And within that organization, they have a what they call a rapid deployment group that you can, the president can order them into any scenario, any place. In Washington, D.C., when they were having all the problem with the riots, they never got the, they just got staged, they never got into it, but uh, they called up that rapid deploy, 82nd Airborne, because they are so trained that in less than 24 hours, they can be dropped in any place in the world to help deal with any situation that arises. And I've always thought to myself, that's the way God's people ought to be trained. That's the way they ought to be able to respond and be able to be dropped into any situation and be able to operate within that. And, you know, fitting into any particular scenario that somebody really needs help in. And, you know, and I, I'm telling you, I, I watch around here. I, 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 I'm constantly observing and looking. And I, I want to say, you young singles, guys and gals, you, you do a phenomenal job. I watch you with these younger kids. You know, most kids in their 19 or 20s, they don't want anything to do with a 14 or a 13-year-old, you know, and just, and just they don't. They, 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 they're in their own little world. But I watch you. I, I watch you mentor these younger kids. I camp next week, you know, it, it will be a prime example. And, you know, but it doesn't stop there. I watch you at, I watch you at kickball, taking those little guys you know, I was talking to Kathy Dereskevich last week, and they may, I hope they're okay. They took a tumble last night, and our Jim is kind of old. He's ready for retirement, so I hope he's okay. But I was talking to Kathy last week, and their little guy, what's that little guy's name? Jonathan. 
Jonathan. He is the sweetest kid on the planet. And, and she was telling me, she said, that I forget which one of you guys it was, probably was encouraging him on Sunday morning that, hope I see you at kickball tonight. Now, this kid is just a little guy. And he's not going to be able to kick the ball. In fact, if you watch him, he, he just runs around out there and just everything. And he can't catch the ball. He can't kick the ball. Uh, he just, but you guys take him in. And she said, I've never seen where the older guys would encourage him. She said, I had to bring him tonight because some guys said, I'll see you tonight at kickball. And he had to come at kickball tonight. You know what? And then I'll watch you out there with him. And, and so many of the other kids that are just little guys, gals that, that can't really do, but you don't care. It isn't about, this is about the game and we got to win. No, it's about you caring for those little guys and helping them. It, it's, it, it, it's just an incredible thing to watch. You know, and I don't care if it's kickball or softball or, or it's just around here. You know, it's what you do to, to help and to just, uh, you know, take care of the younger ones. And, and some of you younger ones take care of the younger, younger ones. And it's a, it's a thing where it's just, that's great training. That's great training. And that little guy, Jonathan, will grow up as many of our younger kids do, and you'll be a role model for them. They'll want to be like you. And you can transpose what you're doing now in their life into their lives. It's an incredible thing. You know, uh, I, I watch you older guys disciple some of these younger kids. And, you, and some of you gals taking these younger gals and, and mentoring them, being a role model for them. I, I watch as you guys get your little groups of girls together and do things at your house with them. You know, it's, it's more than just how much we know about the Bible. It's about actually investing in these kids' lives. And, and obviously next week at camp will be a, a great opportunity of that. You know, many times, you know, I'll have married, married, married couples come in, and they'll, they'll have a variety of different issues. You know, sometimes uh, they'll, a couple that just has a new baby, and they're struggling with, you know, putting all of that together. You know, I told a couple last week, you know, that when you're, when you're single, you can pretty much do whatever you want to do. Once you get married, that cuts your time that you want to do anything in half. And when you have a child... Forget it. You're done now. Life is over for you. And uh, there's only thing, one thing that's worse than having a little new baby, and it's probably on the same issue, and that's having a new puppy because, I mean, it, they're all the same. But it's a thing where life changes. And a lot of times these couples can't, because they have no real biblical principles, they're good people, but they need somebody. And I can just drop a, a young couple that's got their own baby. And the woman can bond with the woman with the baby and the husband with the husband and help them get to that point. You know, and I have them come in sometimes with, with family issues. You know, they're having problems with some of their kids and maybe the kids are younger, or maybe the kids are middle-aged or, or whatever. And yet there's so many of you who, who can drop right into those scenarios. And, you know, it's a thing where it's just invaluable the way uh, that it works. You know, it's a thing where um, sometimes uh, it's your own, your own moms and dads. Your mom's getting, starting to get discipled. You know why that is, Drake? It's because of the change that they saw in your life. And I, you know what? And you're all around here like that. And it's a thing where it's, 
you know, there'll be couples that just get saved and they want to really grow. And there'll be couples there where one is saved and the other is not. And the one that's saved wants to grow. When I work with marital couples, you never know what you're going to get. And, you know, you never know what's going to happen. So I try to cover all the bases, you know, give them my standard operational procedure uh, uh, view of, of marriage and everything. And I always tell them at the end, look, you guys need to get a plan, and I can help you get a plan. And obviously, I could have 10,000 people to put with you to help you, but if you don't want to do it, then it's not going to work for anybody. But I do tell them this. I said, look, you think about this. You go talk about this. You decide what you really want to do. I'm not putting a pressure on you tonight in our counseling session to say yes or no. I want you to count the cost, and I want you to think about what is going to be involved in this. And then you call me and you let me know what I can do for you. If I can, if, if you want to do what's right, I'll put a other couple with you and help you get to that point, wherever you need to do. And then I say, I say to the gal, ma'am, if he doesn't want to do what's right and you do, you, you call me. And I'll say to the guy, if she doesn't want to do what's right and you want to do what's right, then you call me. Because you always want to take care of the person who wants to do what's right. And it's a thing where it just works that way. You know, people who, who just sometimes want to get plugged into the Bible. And, you know, and it's not about matching them up with somebody who really knows the Bible. I mean, that's valuable. But I tell you, it's not about that. It's, it's much more than that. It's about matching them up with somebody who will get into their world, who will become part of their life, who will make that quality investment in them who no matter what it takes, no matter what, you know, time element gets involved, it doesn't matter that you're there recognizing that your investment in their life is going to make all the difference in this world. And it's about putting yourself out to them, uh, not on their, your terms, but on their terms, adjusting your world to fit theirs because that's what they need. And now, you know, I hate to be the master of the obvious, but, but where is that greatest example found? It's found in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He left the splendor of heaven. He left the aristocracy of, of being God's son and came down, and he completely altered his lifestyle for you and for me. And that's the model. I mean, he left it all. He, 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 he came down here. He, he faced hunger. He faced being tired. He faced abuse. He, he didn't have to face any of that up there in heaven. He was lauded and praised as God's son and sat at the throne of God. He had everything, but he changed all of that so he could reach you and me. And sometimes we have to have the ability and be willing to change whatever we got to change to reach that person to make that investment. And it's just, it's just that simple, you know, because to get in, uh, we need in somebody's life and really help them just like it did with Christ. It's going to cost you something. Nobody is just going to work with somebody and on your terms and it's going to be everything great and fine. And you just, it doesn't work that way. It's going to cost us something. When you pastor a church or you begin to build a church, let me tell you something. If the reason why most pastors fail, they're not willing to pay the cost. They don't want to they don't want to do what they got to do. They don't want to change. They don't want to orchestrate their time to take away from uh, you know it's like if you mess I want to work with people but don't disrupt my comfort level. And of course it'll never work that way. 
Because you're going to have to, I'm going to have to come to the place where that if you're going to really get into somebody's life and help them, then you're going to have to be there where they need you. You're going to have to do more than just give them what the Bible is. You know, you take our own discipleship lessons. Now, I know we got 10 lessons there or whatever it is, and you bring them through. And in rational thinking, you would think, well, if I do one lesson a week, we'll be done with this uh, in, in 10, 11, 12 weeks. And, you know, that's never the case. Some of you disciple people for six months. Some of you take almost a year to do it. Why is that? Because there's much more to it than just going through the lessons. You know as well as I do that when you start to disciple somebody, you're going to open up a can of worms that they're going to want to talk about other things in their life. I've known you guys that you started to disciple somebody and you came back to me and said, well, we've been at it four weeks now and haven't even got the lesson one yet. That's what you're supposed to do because it's, it's just an opener for people to get into their world it's just a set of lessons. I, guys used to, pastors used to tell me, well, these discipleship lessons are the greatest thing I ever saw in my life. I'll tell you what, they are the greatest stuff I've ever, and I used to think to myself, you've you got to be kidding me. I mean, these things are the most basic things on the planet. There is nothing magical about these lessons. All I did back in the 70s, all I did was just sit down and think, what do my new people need? Where do I start to give them the basics? And those 10 lessons just came out of it. There's nothing magical about them. You're not going to come out of there with the... But the key is it's just, a, it's just a shoehorn. It's just a door opener to get into somebody's world because the, the lessons don't do the job. It's you getting into their world that does the job. It's you making that quality investment. And that's why I told you years and years ago when you disciple somebody... It's not, forget the lessons. It's about the four goals that are behind those lessons. Obviously, goal one, we want to establish them into the Bible. So we've got 10 or 12 basic things that that they need to know. They're not going to be earth-shattering things. We ain't going to decide the day of the rapture or who the Antichrist is. It's a thing where they're just basic fundamental platforms, that somebody needs to know when they really want to begin in an entry level of getting into the Bible. And then the second goal is to establish them into this church. How do you do that? You do that by introducing them to what's going on around here. You, you, you invite them to kickball. You invite them to the things we do. Now, I'm not saying, I'm not saying even suggesting that you've got to be at everything this church does. And I say that, on the other hand, is most of you do. (laughs) And most of you can't get enough of this place. And I understand. I mean, I get it. I mean, when you have fun and you get into things and you enjoy people, there's a camaraderie here that you don't find in most churches. And I'll be honest, I had nothing to do with it. It's just the fact that you fell in love with the book, you fell in love with the Lord, and through the process, you fell in love with each other. And you fell in love with people. And you realize that people need other people. And you decided in your life that that's what you're going to do. And as we work together through our people ministry, and I did teach you those things, hey, it become apparent as I watch you develop and grow, and you really had a desire to work with people. And more important than that, it wasn't a desire to work with them on your terms. It was whatever what I got to do, whatever I got to give up, whatever I got to, because that person that God has given me, 
is the most important thing in my world right now as far as, as my ministry. And then, you know, the third one, to establish them with other people. You introduce them around. You get them on your volleyball team. You get them on your softball team. You get them, when we used to, we did our prayer groups, you get them into your prayer group. You, you're always looking. You're inviting them to things, and you're there with them, and you're helping them, and you're, you're bringing them through all of these things, and you're, you're doing from them what somebody did for you. You're infecting them with the things of the Lord. And then, of course, the end result is to bring them around and to establish them in ministry. That's the real goal. Reproducing ourselves in somebody else's life. And uh, it's so much more than just the lessons. It's, 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 it's an investment. It's an investment. And you've got to be in the middle of that investment. You know, people today, they have a great void in their lives. And they, they really don't know how to fix it. You know, most young pastors never understand this and they, they never get it. But when you, wherever you go in this world, if you're going to have an effective ministry, you got to look at the culture. Every culture will have a major issue that the whole culture deals with. And obviously, if you go down into a third world country someplace like, uh, you know, Sao Salvador or Honduras or Guatemala or some of those places, the, the, the need is, is, they're needy. They need food. They need clothes. So many of the missionaries, if they got any kind of brains at all, they don't just start and open a church. They open up a clinic. They open up a place where people can come and get what they need. And through that, they penetrate that culture. And America has its own brand of problems. America is the, is it actually, America, building a church in America, and I'm not saying that building a church is an, ever an easy thing to do. I don't, but in America, if you're going to start a church, if you got half a brain, once you identify the cultural issues in America and you work through that, you're going to reach people. And America doesn't need any food. My goodness, go to Hy-Vee, go to Price Chopper. I mean, you see people along the road selling you tamales. It doesn't need food. It doesn't need clothes. Are you kidding me? Go home and count the shoes you have in your closet today or the shirts you have hanging in your, in your closet. You don't, we don't need any more clothes. No, America's problems are unique to America. And if you want to reach America and penetrate America's culture, you have to identify what the problem really is. And it's simple. America is an insane asylum run by the inmates. America is emotionally busted. Broken lives, broken families, broken marriages, people who are absolutely empty inside and have no answer to their emptiness. They're just they're, they're, they're depressed. Everybody is on meds. Everybody is doing this. Everybody's taking that. Everybody's being diagnosed as bipolar or schizo or, or you know, got some. And, I, and I'm not saying some of that isn't legitimate, but I am telling you. I'm telling you, America is a nation and a culture that's got this gigantic void in the middle of it. And, and people try to fix it with things that won't fix it. I mean, they try to fix it with alcohol. 
They try to fix it with a social life. They try to fix it with music or with friends or relationships. They'll turn to drugs. They'll turn to religion. They'll turn to possessions, thinking that those are the things that are going to fill that emptiness and that void in my life. And you know what? I I said it a couple weeks ago. And until you apply biblical principles to your problem, your problems are only going to get worse. So you get into alcohol and the social life and you think that solves it. It doesn't. It just leads to another level of problems. We think of all the things in the world out there that will fill that hole. And yet, in reality, the only thing that will fill that hole is a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. But you can use their issues to help them see that and get the message of Christ to them. And you know what? That's the value of a church like this. Any church that believes the Bible. Any church that's filled with people. Because only Christ can fill that hole. And I like the word hole. Because that's exactly what it is. Haggai chapter 1 verse 6. You talk about a verse that paints America and our culture the way that it really is. It says ye eat, but not enough. (laughs) Obviously. We got more food and, and great fine dining and all the things on this planet. And you know what? You can go out and have a great dinner down on the plaza, if you can get down there. You can go out there and have a great meal at your favorite restaurant and spend an evening out there. And well, you know what? When you come back, your problems haven't went away. He says you drink and you're not filled. And you can just drink your life away trying to drown out your issues and in the next morning, they're still going to be there. And then it says you earn wages. And here it comes, earn wages, and you're put into a bag with holes. Everything in this life that you and I think is going to fix our problem is like having this humongous bag that we keep storing stuff in it, putting stuff in it. Oh, look what I got now. Look what I got now. Oh, yeah, I need this. I need that. Oh, this here. Oh, give me two of these. I'll put this in there. And then when you get down the end of life, you hold the bag up, and everything you put in it fell out. You know why? Because that bag had a hole in it. And the reason why you can't fill your life with those things is because your life has a hole in it, has a tremendous void. And there's only one person that will fill that void, and that is the relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. We saw it last week with a rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10. He had great possessions, but he wasn't satisfied. And when he was faced with really going for the Lord and doing what God wanted him to do, he couldn't do it. You know why? Because he had all these things in his life. We see it in John chapter 4 with the famous woman at the well. And in John chapter 4, you know, she had been going to this well uh, you know, and her forefathers for all the way back to Jacob's time. And, and over a thousand years, people have been going to that well. All her life, she'd been going to that well and filling her pitchers and bringing water, and Jesus used that. Did you see that? He penetrated her culture right there by what she was doing, coming to draw water. And she says to her, you know what? The water I give you will quench your thirst, and you'll never have thirst again. And he was making the parallels between the water and the things of this life to the everlasting water that God gives us through salvation. And she got it. You know how she got it? Because the Bible says when she left and went on her way, she left, read it, she left her pitcher. 
She was never going to have to come back to the well to try to fulfill her thirst because your thirst will be quenched in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's just that simple. And you know, and, and many of you are, are living proof that Christianity, real Christianity, uh, is the answer to their problem. That's why people, I, I have people come in and get saved. One, they'll ask for you to be discipled of. They'll ask for you to work with them. You know why? Because they have seen your life. And the answer to them is because they have seen the change. They see now what Christ means to you when there was a time in your life where he didn't mean anything. They see what this church means to you when there was a time in your life when going to church was nothing to you. They see now what the Bible means to you where there was a time in your life where you didn't read it. And they see now what God's ministry means to you. And now they see also what they mean to you. Letting them see the change the Word of God made in your life and how that's exactly the change that they need. I cannot tell you, I cannot emphasize this enough or make this point more strongly. That is a thousand times better than all the verses you know. Because the result of a changed life will change other people's lives by you giving them of yourself, whatever it takes to help them. The investment of you, uh, your life, into their life. That's where the real sacrifices are made. That's where the real cost will become in ministry. It isn't you getting beat up and, and run out of town because you preach Christ. It isn't be people. Uh, it, it comes from the fact that you have to make the sacrifices in your own world to help somebody else. Just like Christ made the supreme sacrifice for us, we have to become a living sacrifice for him. Somebody said it, God first, others second, and us last. See it all the time. Then I showed you also last week how that uh, through the preaching of Christ, lifting him up, that uh, he needs to be center stage. And I took you back to Nehemiah chapter 8 and showed you there at the water gate how that they made a pulpit of wood and how I showed you the five areas that when you put these things in your life that happened in Nehemiah chapter 8, the word of God being, being distinctly and exact in your life. You know, giving your undivided attention to the things of the Word of God. The unity that comes of pulling everybody together. And all of those things that uh, the respect that uh, they had for the Word of God. And of course, the, the love relationship that they had with it. When you see those things, you know, uh, that's where real revival is. And that's so important. Then I, I showed you in verse 25 that this virtuous woman is rejoicing in a time to come. And we talked about how that that is a picture of if she's raising up her children. She's making sure that they got all the clothes that they need and taking care of them and giving meat to her household. And now later on, as they get older, they're by her side. They're by your side in ministry, working with you, helping that team concept. And she's rejoicing in that. And then I also talked about the rejoicing at the judgment seat of Christ. And wow, we talked about Revelation chapter 4 verse 10 about not going in empty handed and taking the Lord, the things, and the honor and glory and laying our crowns at his feet. So, you know, I wanted to give you a little take off of last week because as I said, I like to kind of bridge the two because all of these messages really go together. And so today... 
We're going to look at a couple of more verses that we can add to our collection of principles. And as we get down to our final verses, and we're almost finished with the book of Proverbs. By the way, the number today is 300, really 301. But the number for all practical purposes today is 300. You say, what do you mean by that? Chris Piscano got me after the service last week, and uh, Chris heads up our street ministry and does a ferment to, to draw. They're kind of out of out of place right now because of the virus. But but uh, he came to me last week and he said, you know, he has a podcast or a radio program. I don't know something that he broadcasts, and he puts all of our stuff on it that people that can listen to is another aspect. And he said, you know, he so he he counts all these things, and he said, I just want you to know, last Sunday was the 300th message you preached in Proverbs. 300 messages out of Proverbs. You know, and I got thinking about that. You know, 300 messages. I go about an hour, about an hour and a half or something like that. Uh, don't get nervous. We won't be that long today. Uh, but, you know, so you figure that out. That's over around 500 hours of study uh, on a book that is God's mind. So here we have on a book, Proverbs, that deals with God's mind, We've had so far over three, 301 today, but 300 messages and over 500 hours. Now, before we break out the cake and champagne, let me ask you a question. After 300 sermons and over 500 hours, how has that changed you? I mean, you would think 300 messages on the mind of God, principles, and over 500 hours. (coughs) The question is, how has that changed you? Has anything changed? Or are you still the same as you were when we started it? You know, I, you know, I, I'm not, I don't know a lot about football and I don't know a lot about any of the sports and, uh, but I, I do listen from time to time, you know, and, 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 you know, in the NFL, uh, it's a thing where uh, every once in a while a guy will retire after 14 or 15 seasons, which is a long time in the NFL. And, uh, you know, they'll talk about the hack that in all those games, and, you know, 15 years is a lot of games, man. I don't know how many you play a year, but it's, it's probably up 1,000 or more games. And they'll talk about in all of those games, some 1,800 games, this guy only missed two games. Now, that's quite a feat. I mean, that's a serious ball player. You know what that means? That means that he played through when he had the flu. It played, he played through when he didn't feel well. He played through and got to the game when he was hurting. It, it means that he never gave up when he was tired and he was fatigued and, uh, you know, he had a cold or he didn't feel up to it or he hurt something in the last game and he, he should have stayed out, but he didn't. That's a serious ball player. And I wonder, we've been in Proverbs now, I think somebody told me seven years, I forget, something like that. In seven years, 300 sermons, over 500 hours, how many have you missed? I mean, some people just keep getting better and better. Some people just stay the same. Some people, if you go any slower, you're going to go back in time. Now, I get it. 
I'm the kind of guy that, you know, deer season comes around. We got guys that go deer hunting. I'm all for that. I, I think you need to get a break and you need to get away. Uh, you'll never see me say, well, I don't think you got to go deer hunting. You got to be in church. No, I think you ought to get away every once in a while and kill something. I'm all for that. <laughs> don't take that the wrong way. Get out in the woods, and I know, and I'm not these guys. I've had guys tell me, well, I can worship God out in the woods just like I can at church. No, you can't, but go anyhow. Get out, blow the cobwebs out, shoot something. If you don't, can't see a deer, shoot the guy that took your deer stand and you had to find another one. I don't care. Guys like to go on vacation, all for that. I mean, uh, don't talk to John Christensen about it right now, but uh, going to Florida, getting sick, but vacations are good. You need a break. I'm not talking about that. But I am telling you right now, there are some of God's people can't get to church one Sunday out of the month. And they always got a good reason. I, I know, I know, I know. Little Johnny had a cough and cold and pneumonia, you suppose. So the whole family stayed home to blow little Johnny's nose. I get that. And I'm telling you. But what's your score? I mean, there are some people that only get to church once every two or three years. You have, your, you have your transient Christians. They'll come in and you'll see them for a month and then they'll be out for two years and then they'll pop back in again for a couple of months and they'll be out again. I mean, what is wrong with you? What's your score? 280, 250, 200, 150, 50, 20, or maybe zero. And of course, you know, imagine, just imagine. I'm just kibitzing now. Just imagine the chance Forget me in preaching it, the Bible itself, the chance to get into a book that is God's mind where you're going to spend, what, 300 sermons over 500 hours and come away hopefully? And yet somebody else or something else become more important. And I'm just telling you, this is the state of Christianity today. And it's a thing where it's a, it's a tragedy that everything out there is more important than the most important thing in your world. And then we wonder when we have our kids who have problems and won't come to church, that we have to scratch our heads while we lose everything in life and we're so miserable and we're going to the psychologist, we're going to the therapist, we're going to there and somebody paying him $100 an hour who could care less. And you know when you'll be cured? When your insurance runs out. Instead of coming to the one book that can change your life. Instead of coming to the one person that can really make a difference in your life. Instead of coming and opening up and getting the book that has God's mind in it so you understand what you're up against in life. So you quit making bad choices and bad decisions in your life. Now, okay, here's our text today. 301, verses 26 and 27. She openeth her mouth with wisdom. And in her tongue is the law of kindness. She looketh well to the ways of her household and eateth not the bread of idleness. Alex, would you stand up and ask the blessing on a preaching this morning? Now, verse 26 says, She openeth her mouth with wisdom, and in her tongue is the law of kindness. Now, this is a really good verse. 
Now, when I read the verse, the thing that jumps out at me and really forms a contrast, for me anyhow, when looking at the Bible, is a study of the phrase, she opened her mouth. Now, we all open our mouths. And I'm going to stop right here and put an end to when it says she opened her mouth because all the guys want to get out there and talk about their wives or talk about women with big mouths. And you know what? If I've learned anything in life, men have as big a mouth if not bigger than most women. So let's just forget that one and just go right to the text here. She openeth her mouth. Let me tell you a story, a story of this lady one time. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> now, we all open our mouths and say things. But it's what comes out that's the issue. Because what's going to come out is either something that is wise based on God's wisdom or something that's foolish based on not God's wisdom. You know, and as I uh, was putting this together this week, I, I remembered another place in the Bible. I'm sure there's many, but this one stuck out in my mind, where another man opened his mouth. And when you lay this out with the other guy and study them, you learn some great truth. It forms a great contrast for us. Now, I don't know if you've even picked up on where it is. We studied them a couple of times in the last couple of months, but it's our old friend Jephthah from Judges chapter 11. Remember the story about him? He's one of the judges of Israel, and he opens his mouth and makes a foolish vow, and he says, Lord, if you give me this victory, I'm going to offer to you the first thing as a sacrifice that I see when I come back home. Utterly stupid, utterly ridiculous, because when he came back home, the first thing he saw was his daughter running down to meet him. And you know what he did? He killed his daughter. He sacrificed his daughter the most stupid thing he could have done that he didn't have to do when we studied it and I showed you. But I want you to, you don't have to turn to it, just let me read it for you. Judges chapter 11, verse 35. And Jephthah came to Mispeth unto his house, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with timbrels and with dances, and she was his only child. Beside her, he had neither son nor daughter. Now, the Bible makes it very clear that she is the only child he has. That ups the ante here a little bit. And it came to pass when he saw her that he rent his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, thou hast brought me very low, and thou art the one that troubles me. Now, that is so typical. This daughter didn't do anything. You know what troubled him? It was his own big mouth. You know what troubled him? It was the fact when he opened his mouth, foolishness came out. But notice how people who speak foolishly never see that they're really the problem. And here it is. He comes home. <coughs> he made a stupid vow. This sweetheart daughter, who's a great kid when you look at her life as much as we can see, comes running out to him, and he wants to blame the problem on her. Boy, that is so typical. We always want to blame our problems on somebody else when we're speaking foolishly because the foolishness that we're speaking doesn't come from the wisdom that we should have, but because we don't have the wisdom, we speak fully. Now, look at this. And it came to pass when he saw her that he rent his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, thou hast brought me very low, and thou art one of them that troubled me. For I have opened my mouth unto the Lord, and I cannot go back. You see, we all open our mouths and say stupid things. Amen. I do, you do. But what the problem is, is when you open your mouth and say something stupid, but you won't go back. 
You won't recognize that it was stupid. You won't fix it because of what you said was, was not by wisdom. It was by your own flesh or your own emotion or your own anger. You didn't look around you and say, hey, before I open my mouth and say something stupid, I have people around me that I'm discipling and I'm ministering to, so I better think twice of how I say what I'm going to say. And I'm telling you, you know, he is so typical. And without any wisdom of the word of God, he opens his mouth. And there's a lot of that going on around today. So we see that great contrast of somebody opening up their mouth. And now, here's our two men in the Bible. One is a wise man, and one is a foolish man. And the whole book of Proverbs is built around that. The whole Bible's built around that concept. One's a fool, and the other is a wise man. The fool will open his mouth, and foolish things will come out. The wise man will open his mouth, and wisdom and understanding will come out. Last week, I showed you the great verse on ministry in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Verses 1 and 2, how that we are the manifestation of truth through that truth. And how do we do that? By Not by what we say, but by commending ourselves to everyone's conscience. We manifest the truth of God not by what we say, by what we commend to somebody else's conscience. How we live our lifestyle. What we say in a most crucial time that could be volatile, Thinking through what you say before you just jump into it with your mouth. Laying out the truth of God's word when you open your mouth. Giving people what they need to hear, but not necessarily what they want to hear. And doing it the right way. Now look at the second part of this great verse. Now truth can be hard sometimes. No question about that. And you're going to deal with people who after years of years and years of living in denial, that uh, truth is hard for them to grasp. And the Bible says here that that in her tongue is the law of kindness. So you, you look at that and you think to yourself, you know, I know I've dealt with people, and I know many of you have too, where you have the truth and they don't. And they don't necessarily want the truth. And when you try to give them the truth, it's very obvious that they don't want the truth. And the reason why is because truth sometimes can be a tough thing to grasp, especially if you've deceived yourself all those years. So we see in this next part of the verse, she through wisdom and understanding not only has the truth of God, but she has understanding through the wisdom of how, uh, what she knows how to give out the word of God. Because wisdom and understanding will produce discernment and discretion. You know, John chapter 1 verse 17 is a great verse. And the Bible talks about that when Jesus came, he he makes a distinction between the Old Testament and the New Testament. He says that the law came by Moses. But he says that Jesus Christ came by grace and truth. You see, truth of the word of God, but the grace to know how to use that truth. Verse 26 says, she opened her mouth with wisdom, but it also says, and in her tongue was the law of kindness. You know, you always got to, having the truth is just not enough. 
And you're going to find a lot of guys today have the truth, but they have no grace to use the truth. And uh, Colossians chapter 4, verse 6 says, Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer every man. And there's the key right there. The ability to know how to answer somebody. I mean, truth can be hard. And truth sometimes when you're dealing with somebody, uh, if you don't have the grace. I mean, this is an invaluable key in working and dealing with people, not just knowing the Bible, but knowing how to use the Bible. Now, what I'm about to say here, and I want to use this as an example, but I want to be very carefully, so listen very carefully. Nobody on this planet has, no, has more respect for Dr. Ruckman when he was alive than, than I do. I knew that man when I first met him at 20 years of age and, and was in contact or knew of him and throughout my almost 50 years in the ministry, preached many Bible conferences with him, uh, preached in many churches with him, and, uh, you know, and preached together with him uh, for many, many years. And, uh, and so I, I, I want to be careful how I say this. And first of all, let me say that he was one of a kind. He was the most unique individual I ever met in my life. Probably, not even probably, without a doubt in my mind, he was the greatest mind on the English Bible in the 20th century. And I'll stop there, but I probably could go on back to the 19th and 18th century and right on down the line. And I understand that. I understand the role that he played and how God used him. And he was a peculiar individual. He wasn't a very sociable guy, and a lot of that goes back to how he was attacked on every side, and so he just kind of closed up and didn't really trust very few people. And uh, I, so I get all of that. He started a school down in Pensacola, Florida that was a, a Pensacola Bible Institute. We've had Dean Hayes up here. Dean Hayes teaches in his institute down here. And uh, you know what? I, I'm just telling you. There, there was, there, there, you'll never find another mind on the English Bible anywhere. And if you find one, I guarantee you, uh, you better look at it carefully. This guy was incredible. I, I mean, I don't even want, God had a job for him. He fulfilled that job and he did, and I don't have time to get into it, but I'll tell you what, he did for all of us what, what we have a Bible this morning because of guys just like him. But, but having said that, he was his own man and he was a unique individual. And he turned out of his school some very good guys. I know some good guys that are doing a great job. But having said that, he turned out some real goofballs too. And that's not a, not a criticism to him. I'll tell you what it is. He was a very strong individual. And a lot of guys who are weak will go down to his school and want to be a Peter S. Ruckman. And he, was very, he could be very hard and he could seem to be very indifferent, but once you got on the inside and knew him, he had a lot of compassion. And, you know, I've seen him weep, weep, weep for people who were lost, but most people never would get to see that. And so you had all these goofy guys who had their own problems to begin with, would go down there and they'd want to turn into a little Peter S. Ruckman. And they would get the truth from his school, but they would have absolutely no grace. I mean, uh, I, we had a guy back in Canton. I won't tell you his name because last I knew he was still alive. Dr. Ruckman is German. He took great pride in being, uh, being German. 
and he would go to Europe every year uh, and go to Germany and just pass out tracts, and he'd weep for his people. I mean, he, he had a real burden for Germany. And I don't know how many times I've heard him say, you know, that if God would let him, he'd drop everything here and he'd go to Germany to be a missionary. He'd have fit in there really well. But these guys got tagging the fact that to be like Ruckman, you had to be German. So actually, there was this guy in Canton, Ohio, you remember this, the guy in Canton, Ohio, who changed his last name, which was close to being I'm not going to say the name, but it was, he, he just put a T-H on the end and turned it into a German name. Now, everybody knew his name, what, what it really was, and it wasn't German. But suddenly, when he came back from Ruckman's school, he, he was now a German because Ruckman was German, and he wanted to be like Ruckman, and he had absolutely no grace. Oh, he was the hardest line guy you ever met. He could spit out truth, but he had no grace. And uh, he never got into the ministry. These guys never get into the ministry. There's several of them here in Kansas City. Hey, I get phone calls from them every once in a while. Hey, brother, how you doing? <laughs> well, I was doing just fine until I answered this phone. How you doing? We've had them come to church a couple of times. You can always tell them because they always wear a shirt and a tie and got a, like a stack of tracks in their pocket. Now, nothing against that. But I'm telling you, I spot these guys a mile away. And uh, I remember a couple of years ago, one came in and, and I was preaching. And, uh, you know, and I'm careful when I, I mean, when I say what I have to say, but I'm not going to offend somebody. If, if you call me up and say, hey, I'm bringing, I've had people call me up and, and say, hey, I'm, I'm, my, my brother or my cousin is coming to church today. And I just want you to know he's gay. And so, you know, lay off the gay jokes. And, you know, and I don't go out of my way. I mean, I'll, I'll just say something to be goofy sometimes because that's part of my charm, okay? But it's a thing where if I know, I've had him come in and say, hey, my, my brother's coming or my dad's coming and he's Catholic. Okay. Now, do you think I'm going to get up here and say something about the Catholic Church so he'll get saved? Because you think he'll get saved if I do that? I will steer away from it. I'll preach about something else and, and I would never attack somebody of what they believe. Now, now you come to Bible study, and you, 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 uh, you attack me, I, I, I'll put your lights out for you. I, I will, but I won't go out of my way because I'm not going to do that. But this guy came up afterwards and he said, and I think I said something about the Catholic Church. This guy came up and he said, well, brother, I uh, just want you to know I'm good to be here today. And I knew who he was. I don't have to answer, introduce yourself to me. You're, you're Jimmy Goofus. I know exactly who you are. And he says, I'll just tell you, brother. He says, uh, you, ought to get a little, you ought to do a little more horror bashing. You know, the great horror, Revelation chapter 19 or 7, whatever it is. He said, you ought to do a little more horror bashing. You ought to bash the mother, mother harlot. And I'm saying, yeah, that would go over really good, wouldn't it? And I said, yeah, I'll keep that down. In fact, I'm going to put that note in my Bible as soon as you leave. <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, no grace. Now, I'll tell you something about it. They don't go to church anywhere. They're not under under any pastor's authority. They're not in any ministry. They just graduate from Dr. Ruckman's school, and they go around and with all this truth, but absolutely no grace. And I'll tell you, they're all over the place. I I, I told you about the time that I was up there and and preaching in, in, in Boston someplace, 
And I'm driving down, and they're taking this guy from Ruckman School is taking me in his car uh, over to where the pastor's house. And we're going through downtown Boston about 8 or 9 o'clock. I just finished preaching, and we were going over to get something to eat at the pastor's house. So we're driving through Boston. You ever been to Boston on a Saturday night? People are all over the place. Maybe not now, but I don't know. And so he's driving there, and he's got a CB in his car. And he picks up the microphone, and he, he turns it over to the PA. And we're at a stoplight. And there was this nice-looking middle-aged woman just walking from one side of the street to the other. I mean, well-dressed, classy. And he says, God knows where you're going tonight, you hussy. And she looks at him, and I'm going. (laughs) And then there's walking down there, and he's saying, guys walking down the street. God knows where you're going tonight. God said, and he starts preaching. And I'm, and I'm scooting down in the seat as far as I can get, man. And then we get to the next stoplight, and he says, here, brother, you go for it for a while. I said, you know what? My throat's really bothering me tonight. <laughs> In fact, do you have any throat lozenges here? I said, I, you know, and he, I said, I need to save my voice. And, I, and I'm thinking to myself, God, just get me out of here. I said, give him four flat tires, I'll take a cab, and just let him get mobbed by these people. Absolutely stupid. And I'm saying to myself, I just, you know, but that's the way these guys are. Now, you know, I say that, and I, this is no reflection on Dr. Ruckman, because he, 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 uh, he, he turns out a lot of good guys. And I, you know, I'm going to tell you something, nobody bats a thousand. You think all the guys that I've taught and, and, and have come out good? I mean, I, I spent my whole life teaching these guys the King James Bible, the Word of God, and there's a bunch of them around here today that have dumped the Bible and gone their own way. We've got guys that grew up in my ministry who knew what the church was, who knew what the Bible was, who knew what pastoral authority was. They don't go to church anywhere, and they get this great, goofy doctrine that only God gave them, and they don't go to church anywhere. They don't have any pastor in their life. Their own family won't come to church with them, but they got the truth Goofy, man. Goofy. And I know God's not in favor of mercy killing, but sometimes I am. <laughs> I'm telling you. I mean, it's a thing where you, you see this stuff. you got to have great. Truth is not enough. Truth is absolutely vital, but if you don't have the grace to give that truth out. Amen. And there's two things here in this verse. The first one is the mouth. The mouth is what you speak. When you open your mouth. The second thing is the tongue. Now, tongues were defined for us in Acts chapter 2 as words. I mean, you don't have to look around and wonder what it says when you find tongue in the Bible and mouth and tongue. The Bible defines tongues in Acts chapter 2 as words, language. So the mouth is, is, is what you speak. The tongue is how you say it. You go down to the plaza on a Saturday night, and our guys are down in Westport, and i got to say, Chris Piscano, I've always been against street preaching because of the way it's done. Chris Piscano heads up our street preaching ministry here, and he does that because he does it the right way, and he's as good a guy as you'll ever find. Loves the Lord, loves the book, knows the book. And uh, his wife is as sweet a woman as you're ever going to have. And he's down there, and he takes some of you guys down and some of you young kids down. He does a great job with it. But I'm telling you, 
You go down there on the plaza, and there's a church up here north of Independence up here, uh, someplace uh, that's been running now nine for about 40 years. And uh, all the guys are connected with Ruckman or Ruckman graduates, and they're down there on the plaza with their big signs of people burning in hell. And, uh, you know, and, uh, and uh, out there preaching on the street, yelling at everybody, telling them you're going to die. Now, look, all that is true. But I'm telling you, in a world that we live in that is so out of the mindset of real truth, that kind of stuff is offensive. I, I agree. They are going to hell. I agree. They're going to burn like a torch. I agree. But that's not how you reach them. But you know why you do it? Because you're not in any ministry. You're not dealing with anybody one-on-one. But you're a big, brave guy when you stand out on a a street corner and yell at everybody. And I'm telling you, it takes more than that. You can have all the truth in the world, but if you don't have the grace to use it, you're out. Now it says that she has the law of kindness. In her tongue. A law. God forbid that I keep coming back to the Bible here, but uh, come on. Now, the law of kindness in her tongue. What is that? Well, in James chapter 2, verse 8, that'll be what the Bible calls the royal law. He says in James chapter 2, verse 8, if you fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures... Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, ye do well. This will also be called the law of Christ in Galatians chapter 6, verse 2. He says, Bear ye one another burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now, the law of Christ is the fact that you have truth. Jesus came with truth, but he also came with grace. Grace and truth. And you may have the truth when you open your mouth, but you better have the grace in your tongue of how to say what you got to say. Christ set this law in motion in Matthew chapter 22, verses 36 through 40, when he said, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophet. You know what he did? Jesus took the Old Testament 10, which was given by Moses, and then brought him into grace and truth in the New Testament and put all 10 in two. Love God first and love your neighbor as yourself and as you love God. If you follow that, you'll never not have grace when you deal with something. You know, he takes all the commandments and puts them in two. Romans 15, 1 says, Ye that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. Bearing each other's infirmities. Not criticizing somebody because of their weakness. Not criticizing somebody because they made a stupid mistake. Not criticizing somebody because they they didn't handle the situation right. Bearing their burdens. Take the word negativity out of your vocabulary. Bearing one another's burden. Your burden becomes mine. Your struggles become my struggles. And together, there's, with the truth and the grace to use that truth, there's nothing we can't get through. That's just the way it works. We are to treat others like God treats us. We would never stand or we would be upset with God or we would be so mad at God if he treated us the way we treat others. 
if he said the things about us that we say about others. Instead of complaining about them, why don't you put your arm around them and help walk them through it? That's what God would do with you and me. He says, come now, let us reason together. Though you be sins, be a scarlet. God wants to reason with you. Why can't we reason with each other? We got camp this week, and I got a series of messages on building the wall. Great theme, Zach, great theme, guys, great theme. And one of the questions I always want to ask young people is, is why do you treat each other so badly? Why do you girls tear up other girls? Why do you say nasty things about them that aren't true? Why do you guys pick on and belittle the other guys? Why? It seems at that age group that that's exactly what they do. Why can't you guys get it together and realize the very people you're picking on right now, five years from now if you stay with it, are going to be your lifeline in ministry to help you deal with people? I get it. You're young. I get it. You're stupid. I get it. I realize, hey, I was the same way when I, I was worse than you. But that's no excuse. You ought to be better than that. You know why? Because your parents are better than that. And parents, you ought to look for that in your kids, and you ought to stomp that out when you see it instead of always sticking up for them. Now, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32 says, And be ye kind one to another. Can, oh, uh, excuse me. I need to get my grace here and read this biblically for you. <laughs> and be ye kind one to another. Tenderhearted. Forgiving one another even as Christ hath forgiven you. I moved my own self by saying that. I want to say it again. <laughs> we should never use the word of God to hurt somebody. We should never use the truth that we have to hurt somebody. Now, I get it. We all do dumb things. I do. We all make mistakes. I do. You do. And I, I know that, but I, I, we're all human. But I am telling you right now, you know, you, we should never use the Word of God to hurt somebody. My life, and I get criticized for this a lot, but I'm telling you, my life, when I'm dealing with people, is out of the chute, I always give person the benefit of the doubt. You know why? Because I want God to continue giving me the benefit of the doubt. It's just a, and you know, you have truth, but you have no ulterior motive. You have truth, but you have no hidden agenda. You have truth, but you have no secret message you're trying to give to somebody. You just preach the truth. I mean, I can't be responsible. I mean, I'm not going to sidestep a verse in Proverbs or anywhere else if I think it's going to, you know what? I would think of it as something that we all need. I don't sit there and think, well, so-and-so needs this. First thing I'll think is, I need this. You manifest it through you commending yourself to every man's conscience. Look, I'm no better than you, and you're no better than the person sitting next to you, so quit thinking you are. We're all in this together. And we'll all make it together or we'll all, as somebody said during the Revolutionary War, we'll either hang together or we'll all hang separately. The ministry, you have to deal with some very hard issues sometimes. You have to make some hard calls. You always want to make sure you're doing it based on the principles and not your personal preferences. But you commend yourself to every man's conscience in the sight of God. You be honest. You stay with the principles. You know, last week, the rich young ruler, I want, I, this, this, things like this will jump out at you. 
Now, here's a guy who came to Christ. Christ told him what to do. He walked right out the door and didn't do it. Now, what would, what would, what would most pastors do if I came to you? And, and I have it all the time where I come to you and tell you what you need to do, and you don't do it. You just go out and do your own thing. And see, if you're not careful, don't have grace, you can get an attitude about that. Well, they didn't want to do what's right, so forget it. It's easy to get an attitude. I should say it's easy to get the wrong attitude. But I want you to notice. That rich young ruler, even though he didn't make the right choice, and he walked away from it, the Bible made it clear that the Bible says that the Lord loved him. You know, God loves you and me in spite of the bad choices we make. God loves you and me in spite of the stupid things that we do. Now, you would think that if we're Christ-like and have these two royal laws working in our lives, we could, we could do that to other people around us, but we can't. And when you and I don't do what's right, God still loves us. That's grace and truth in action. And we need that in our own lives to work with people. Sure, we got the truth, but the question is, do you have the grace? You sometimes in the ministry, you got to love people when it's hard to love them. And you know what you do? You got to love them through Christ because that's the only way you can love them. And you know what it means when you love them through Christ? You go back and realize that you didn't look too hot the first time God saw you or me. You know how God loved you and me enough to get us into heaven? God looked at us through Christ and he loved us through Christ. And sometimes that's what you got to do. So she has God's wisdom and understanding to open her mouth, and she speaks truth. But her words are always by grace, but seasoned with salt, the Word of God, to help people and not just hurt them. Hey, I say it all the time. To the best of my ability, I know it's true of my world with you, I I never do anything to hurt somebody. I never say anything. I may have to keep you accountable, but it'll always be by the principles. I'm not doing to hurt you. Just like your parents, when they whipped you, they didn't do it because they enjoyed it. Hope not, anyhow. They did it because it was for your good. But I tell you many times, nobody in this church will hurt you. But that doesn't mean you won't hurt yourself. That doesn't mean that you won't reject truth or help or whatever the case may be. And I know, just like Jephthah, you blame your problems on everybody else. It was daughter did do nothing but be a sweet daughter, but she says, you're the one that troubles me. No, it was your own big mouth that troubled you. And when we get into trouble and want to blame other people, nine times out of ten, it's because of our own big mouth that got us in trouble in the first place. Our goal, my goal, is never just to win the battle, but rather to win the brother, because that's where the real victory is. Then it says in verse 27, she looketh well to the way of her household, and it is not the bread of idleness. <clears throat> now, we touched on this a couple of weeks ago, and I want to develop it just a little bit farther here as we come through this. And there's two things here. Looks well to her household. Number one, that'll be her family. We've talked about this many, many times, ministering together. Uh, her first responsibility and obligation. Verse 15 says, we saw it, that she <clears throat> gave meat to her household. And verse 21 talks about clothing them with scarlet. She gives them the word of God and she gets them saved. We, we've been through this. And in verse 25 now, <clears throat> she's rejoicing in what God has done uh, with her family. And so that's the first aspect. And then it says, <clears throat> the bread of idleness. And we talked about this. 
We touched on a couple of weeks ago, simply not applying the word of God to our lives to where it needs to be applied. Now, I'm very honestly, this is why a child of God here, anyhow, can listen to 300 sermons on the mind of God over 500 hours and it never change them. Because we're too busy applying it where we don't need it instead of where we do need it. Hey, uh, come on. We all have issues. Every one of us. And, you know, we all have things we need to work on. As husbands, as wives, as parents, you know, as ministers, as a pastor, as Christians in general. And, you know, we, we, we all do this. And it's something that you have to really discipline yourself in, in to not do. And that is, we always like to major on the minors. We'll take the word of God that we get and we'll apply it to some place that really doesn't need to be applied when you and I know full well there's things in our life that we need to change. But we sidestep that and put the word of God someplace else because we really don't want to deal with the issue. That is the bread of idleness. In John chapter 6, the bread of life is the word of God. And we, 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 we come to the place that we have an issue in our life. We get the Bible every day. We're in the Bible every day. But we just conveniently sidestep what really needs to fix. So we never go anywhere with it. And you see it all the time. Now, you know me. I'm not, I'm not political one way or the other. I'm not a Democrat, nor I'm a Republican. I, I'm in the middle. I could care less. I know that if I'm a Republican, then I can't minister to Democrats. If I'm a Democrat, I can't miss the Republicans. I'm like the, I'm like the American Red Cross. I don't take any sides. You know what? I just know this. There isn't anybody going to fix this country until Jesus comes back. So everything else is just a bunch of chess pieces on a chessboard being moved around. But I'll tell you this. Just talk about Trump for a moment. And I'm not against him. I'm not against anybody. But I'm just telling you this. I watch a lot of Christians. You know, when Trump was running for president the last time, and I'm glad he won. But when he ran for president the last time, you know, he got the neo-evangelical crowd on his side. He told everybody he was a Christian, and, you know, and and that was great. Everybody got on a bandwagon, and and everybody was happy about it, and he got him elected, and I think they played a major role in it. And he's played somewhat of a key thing in, you know, uh, telling everybody he's coming up for election again in November, and I'm sure he'll play to that crowd again. And and I know know a lot of Christians. I, I get emails from them all the time. They think Trump's the second coming of Christ. And, and I, you know, and I'm, I don't care. It don't. But I will tell you this. Here's the problem I have with it. I watch these people. They put out, they pass out flyers on Trump. They pass out this. They talk to everybody about how good he is and how our country needs him. And I agree. You think I want Nancy Pelosi telling me what to do? I, I get it. I understand that. But here's my problem. Here is the bread of idleness. You spend so much time, so much time talking about him passing out his literature And in your own personal life, you have nothing going on with God. You don't go to church anywhere. You're not involved in a ministry. And you should be here today, and you're not. Bread of idleness. I don't care. I hope he wins. I do. I mean, if the Democrats get in, I'm not political. I don't care. I can just read the tea leaves. I'm just telling you. If they get in, you're going to have some trouble. No, I say to you, I ain't going to have any trouble because I don't care. I mean, they say, you'll take and pay your personal rights. Hey, I got five Jeeps. I'm good. You can take everything I got. I'll just drive them around and be happy. You know what? They're going to take everything you got. They're going to do this. They're going to do that. They're going to raise taxes. You know what? You raise my taxes all you want. The guy that's in charge of me having money to pay my taxes, he's up there. He's not in Washington. 
Now, I appreciate that. Everybody likes to get a stimulus check. But I'll tell you what, you need a stimulus check this morning, but not one from the government. You need one from here. Because some of you need to be stimulated. I just thought of that. I'm going to write that down as soon as this sermon's over. I'm telling you, but I see it. I see it with, with Christians. You know, I, pastors all my life and, and Christians, you know, they put all this emphasis on into soul winning and winning people to Christ and, and ministry and doing all this. and be. I get that. Praise the Lord. But you know what? That's bread of idleness when your own family's not in church with you this morning. I mean, it's a waste of time if, you, if the very thing you, you, you're entrusted with, but now you, you want to you wanna put all this out here when you have nothing going here. That's the bread of idleness. I mean, it's just that simple. I had a guy one time, I mean, you know, here again, I'm great on scenarios. I have thousands of them in the Bible that I, that I use and everything. You know, in Mark chapter 5, verse 19, you had a crazy guy. He was a lunatic, like most of you. He was out of his mind, and he was a picture of an unsaved man. And so he meets Jesus, and Jesus casts all the demons out. They're the ones that goes into the pigs, you know, and... 5,000 swine, you know, and then jumps into the river or mountain ocean and dry. First case of a deviled ham in the Bible. But anyway, it's a thing where he's back in his mind now and he's whole. And he says to Jesus, I want to follow you. I want to worship you. I want to go with you. I want to be with you. I want to be a soul winner. I want to do this. I want to do that. And I want to follow you forever. You know what Jesus said? He says, I appreciate that. But uh-uh. first thing, you go back to your family. And you make it right with them. Because you know what? That's where the real damage was done. How great you want to be a soul winner and serve God. Go back to where the damage was done first before you ever try to follow him. That's a principle. That's a principle. You know, I... I, I had a guy one time, and I get them all the time. They come in from time to time. My life's been, you know, they get, I don't know why they pick on me. I've had, like I said, I've had a lot of guys in my ministry who turned out to be real bozos. I mean, they, they get this, they get this, some heresy going in their life, you know, that they think that they're going to, you know, they're going to change all of Christianity and, and you know, and they'll, and they'll, they'll, They'll come in. To, uh, I had to come to Thursday night Bible study. Have them text me all the time. Have them email me all the time. You know, and they'll say, "Send me this and send me that." And they'll say this, and and sometimes they want to challenge me to a debate. You know, and they say they want to prove their point and all this stuff. I told a guy one time. I said, "You know what?" And this guy was completely messed up on the Bible. And I said, "You know what? If you put as much energy and time." in the ministering to your family as you would putting out this heresy that you're so bent on getting everybody else, you, you'd, you'd revolutionize your family. Your family would be in church with you. As it stands right now, you have no church. You have no pastor. Your family thinks you're an idiot and they won't have anything to do with you when it comes to the Bible. You know what? If you spend as much time with them as you did putting out this heresy, bread of idleness, I've seen parents, hey, put a time and energy into getting their kids, you know, into all kinds of things, and it doesn't matter what it is. It can be anything, sports, theater. It can be education. It can be whatever you want to do, but they'll never take the Bible and give them the meat 
that they really need. Bread of idleness. You know, and she says, eating the bread of idleness. Don't spend a lot of time in the Bible on things that don't make you better. Now, I, I, I say that, and I say at the same time, you got to learn your Bible. But you got to have, just like you got to have a balance between grace and truth, you have to have a balance in your Bible. And you can't, you got these guys that all they do is spend their time in the book of Revelation studying prophecy. You have these guys that all they do is spend their time in the book of Daniel. You have these guys that all they do is come up with some heresy that nobody's ever heard of in the last 2,000 years of Christianity. And that's their hobby horse they ride off into the sunset with. Let me tell you something. Don't spend a lot of time in the Bible with things that don't make you better. This is why some of God's people will, never, will go 20, 30, 40 years and never change and still have the same issues all of their life. They're, 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 they're no closer to their family. They're not in any church. They don't do anything but for, in ministry. They just got their little world that they live in. You know, the Bible's like medicine. It's called a salve. It's called the bomb of Gilead back in the Old Testament, and it'll heal you. But you got to put it on the wound. You can have the right Bible and carry it to church every Sunday, but if you end up applying it to where it really needs to be applied, it's just the bread of idleness. Now, I get it. Bible is like a bad-tasting medicine. I have to take medicine, you know, every night. Most of you do as you get older. You know, you get one of those little pill things that hold all your pills in it. And mine's legitimate stuff. I mean, I got issues with me that, uh, that most of you don't know. And it's a thing where, oh, that hurt. Ah. And anyway, so, you know, and so I, I take about two of one, another one of this, another one of that, all, all legit stuff that my doctor's got me on because, you know, I'm falling apart. And so I'll take them, and you put them all in your mouth. And, and one time I just accidentally chomped down on one of them. Oh, yeah, it was the worst tasting thing you ever saw in your life. Most medicine tastes terrible. And you know what? Bible truth out of the chute hitting you between the eyes can taste terrible. But you know what the young says? Let a little bit of sugar make the medicine go down or whatever it was. Well, when the Bible, it's honey. And that's grace and truth. The honey, the word of God is the grace that when you put with the medicine, the truth makes it palatable for you to be able to take it. It's that great concept that God gave us the truth, but God gives us grace. And God will give us time to get to the truth. You know, the Christian life, like it or not, agree with it or not, doesn't matter. The Christian life is about one word. It's the word change. When you got saved, the word of God changed you. Out of the darkness into the light. From the devil's family to God's family. And the word of God changed you. And most people want to stop right there, but that's not where it stops. That's really where it starts. Because God will continually to change you as you grow after your salvation. And most of God's people are okay and will allow the change of salvation, but not allow the change in their life as they grow and God wants to change. And I'm going to tell you right now, I don't care whether you like it or not. We all got things about us we got to change. And the moment you got saved, praise the Lord, you're on your way to heaven, but now you're only in the highway of change. 
And as you grow, God's going to change some things. And we resist that sometimes. And so, you know, they, they, they never open their mouth with wisdom. They have no grace, no law of kindness to administer the truth. And they spend their whole life eating the bread of idleness and will never allow the word of God to change you. So I ask you today, I ask you, 301 messages, over 500 hours of study, just on Sunday morning alone. We haven't even got into Thursday night Bible study, which is two hours. We haven't got into institute and people ministry, which is two hours. We haven't got into all the time that you spend being discipled. Just on Sunday alone, over 300 messages out of a book that is clearly God's mind and over 500 hours of study time. And the real question is, was there any point to it in your life? Are you sitting here now, 300 messages? And I know not all of you were here. Some of you got through half of it. I guess you got to ask yourself the question, how much you got to hear of God's mind before you'll let it change you? But the real question is, you know, has it changed you? What did it change about you? Did it change anything about you? Are you still sitting here with the same old issues and the same old problems that you had? I mean, uh, come on. What really, the, the reality test for all of us, it, it's, it's, it's how does the Word of God change you? How do you allow it to change you? When I have people come in with problems and I have issues that they want to solve, they have issues they want to solve, whether it's husband or wife, happens all the time. They'll come in, I'll sit down for an hour. I'll lay it all out. I'll tell them, this problem is not that bad. This problem is not that serious. I can show you situations that are a thousand times worse. We can fix this if you want to. And they walk out the door and you never see them again. You know why? Because they don't want to change. Change will be the thing that will defeat us every day of our lives. Because God changed us at salvation, and God, through the process of spiritual growth, wants to change us, to perfect us, to be more like Him every day. What a reality test that is for all of us. Because it's about change. It's about understanding the reality of what God wants to do. Well, Four more verses left in Proverbs, and then we'll be done. And, uh, and we will be finished with the book that is God's mind, and, and uh, it'll be on the Internet forever and ever and ever that people can get it. But the bottom line is, you know what? It's about change for all of us. I'm going to pray here in just a moment, and then those of you who are not here for camp, if you would all... Uh, you can go out to the foyer so Danny and Zach can have this room and move out of here. We can visit out there all you want. We'll close the doors and they can have their meeting. Uh, if you're here for camp, once it all vacates, why don't you move up a little bit so uh, you can hear very well. And uh, one week, pray for camp. See you at kickball tonight, and we'll have a great time. going to be beautiful weather and uh, a great chance to interact with other people and uh, be part of everything that uh, is going on there. So let's have a word of prayer.